That's how we forged a trans-Pacific partnership to open markets and protect workers and the environment and advance American leadership in Asia. It cuts 18,000 taxes on products made in America, which will then support more good jobs here in America. With TPP, China does not set the rules in that region. We do. You want to show our strength in this new century? Approve this agreement. Give us the tools to enforce it. It's the right thing to do. Now that was Barack Obama professing his love for something he staked his legacy on, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But sorry, Mr. President, that ain't happening. The TPP is going down, something to absolutely celebrate in these darker political days. We're going to devote our entire show to the TPP and why it really did suck, and that's an economic term, suck. In a few minutes, you're going to hear from two of the best advocates who are out there who worked hard to defeat the TPP, Laurie Wallach, the director of Global Trade Watch, and Larry Cohen, who was Bernie Sanders' labor advisor and is now the board chair of Our Revolution, which is the next step in the Sanders-inspired movement, an effort that I'm going to talk a lot about in the coming episodes. I want to make a few points for my listeners before we speak with Laurie and Larry, about why the campaign against the TPP was so important. The first is, let's be clear about what the TPP is and is not. The first thing is, it's not a treaty. And I sometimes hear people talking about it as a trade treaty. Now, if you go back to your old civics class in high school or college, you may remember that the Constitution provides that the president, and I'm not going to quote from this, shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. Now, you may remember that treaties are only voted on by the United States Senate, and as I pointed out in quoting that part before, you need two-thirds of the Senate, those senators present, to vote for a treaty for it to become law. All these trade agreements are agreements, not treaties. And this was done on purpose. It was done to make it easier to pass these agreements because all you need is a simple majority to pass these agreements. And these agreements have to be passed by both the Senate and the House. Now, of course, the silver lining in this is that because you need a simple majority to pass the agreement, you only need a simple majority to defeat the agreement. So it makes it a little bit easier to defeat these bad deals. The second thing I want to say is that the TPP and its predecessors, going all the way back to Bill Clinton's NAFTA, are to my mind the best example of the deep corruption in politics today. Because if you go back to NAFTA, these bad deals, and I mean bad for people, have essentially enjoyed bipartisan support. Truthfully, more so from Republicans, but also from Democrats, though that number of Democrats has been dwindling year after year, thanks to the great organizing that's been done against these deals. But nonetheless, these deals passed because of support from both major political parties. Simply put, corporate lobbyists who finance elections for both parties buy these deals because they have access to the negotiators, and they have access to the politicians. But, you know, the corruption is ideological as well. It's the stranglehold of the idea of the so-called free market. And that idea of the free market is embraced by politicians of both parties. They just love the free market. They love it because it's part of American exceptionalism. You know, aren't we great because we're Americans and just look at the great things the free market has done and we wave that around the world and tell the whole world to follow the way this great so-called free market operates. The final point I want to make before we go to our guests is that in the way that we're not really talking about a free market because free markets don't really exist, this is not about free trade. 
there is no such thing as free trade. It is just a marketing phrase. And it's worth making that point here because everyone is for trade. We've traded ever since we've walked upright as human beings. What this trade fight is about is what are the rules that will govern trade? Are they going to be rules that favor corporations? Or are they going to be rules that favor the people? Meaning the ability of people to survive, to make a decent living, and for the planet to survive. That's what this debate is about. So now let's go to my guest, fantastic guest, who I think will explain a lot more about this. So so-called free trade has been a great scar going back to NAFTA, which was actually negotiated by George Bush Sr. and rammed through the Congress by Bill Clinton. These deals have been one bad deal after another one. Now, if you want to get a quick, nice sum up of the TPP's ugliness and why people fought so hard to defeat it, give a listen to this. Our trade agreement should set the rules for trade that are most beneficial to Americans. But our trade policy has been hijacked by special interests. Our trade agreements are negotiated behind closed doors with 500 official corporate advisors. The rules get rigged so that instead of focusing on trade and U.S. jobs, exports, and increasing incomes, the trade agreements have become a delivery mechanism to lock in a whole array of new rights and privileges for commercial interests, investors and corporations that make it easier to offshore jobs, that make it possible to roll back food safety and financial stability rules. As a result, the platform now has to address the reality that our trade agreements have been hijacked so that the trade part is not meeting its economic goals and that the non-trade agenda is undermining the core democratic agenda. That was Lori Wallach testifying before the Democratic Party's platform drafting committee that met in July. And because of the pressure from the Bernie Sanders movement, the Democratic Party platform ended up with a very strong statement against the TPP. In the movement against so-called free trade, I can't think of one person who has done more and knows more than Lori. Lori has been the director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch since 1995, and we're fortunate to have her on the line from Washington, D.C. It's a celebratory day for you, Lori. Uh, in the context of all this political darkness, there's something to celebrate, eh? <laughs> I think it is worth recognizing, especially now, that people power across borders has just defeated multinational corporate power and the goal started in 2009 of an enormous expansion of corporate power through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It has been a push by the President of the United States, the Republican congressional leadership, and all of the big corporate lobbies united and when the president basically had to throw in the towel and say, I'm not going to be able to pass the TPP, I'm not going to get this through Congress, that was a sign of what people can accomplish working together, working people across borders. Yeah, and I want to say a few things to my listeners, or at least the main thing is that you're being quite generous about talking about people, but you've done so much yourself in this whole area over the last quarter century, really, that uh, you should also feel very proud of the work you've done. I know you've worked in coalition with lots of people and brought people together. So it is a wonderful day to celebrate. And and yet, you know, being the skeptical person I am, or maybe cautious is the right word, I wonder whether we still have to watch out and be prepared for things that might come down the road. Yeah, well, first of all, celebrate is a difficult word at this moment, um, just given everything else that is going on. Agreed. I agreed. think it's worth recognizing what an accomplishment 
of organizing and progressive people power derailing the TPP is, and it's very important for everyone to be clear, Donald Trump may have been elected in part because President Obama relentlessly pushed the TPP throughout the entire election season. But Donald Trump did not derail the TPP. People power across borders did. (laughs) And I think that um, that is an incredibly important thing to keep in mind as we sort of look at the challenges we're going to have, which includes making sure there's no zombie TPP. (laughs) So I think that it is the case right now that we can say TPP, RIP, something millions of activists in all of the TPP countries have been yearning to say in their own languages. Yes, I have a sign on my wall in my office that has basically that slogan for all of the countries, TPP adios, TPP hantai in Japanese, etc. And the, the situation now is that there is an agreement that has been signed that can't go into effect unless the U.S. and Japan, Japan both approve it. There is no appetite in the U.S. to approve it. It couldn't pass. There haven't been the votes there since the day it was signed in February. And there undoubtedly will be a push by the corporate coalition that got TPP negotiated, and frankly, the same policy elites in the Democratic and Republican Party to figure out some way to revive it. And we're all going to have to stay on our toes to make sure that doesn't happen. And, and what is kind of extraordinary, if you look back over time, and again, you've been the, a key leader, not just in the United States, but around the world on this trade issue, is how, let's just talk about the Democratic Party, how certainly in the U.S. Senate and in Congress, we always had more people against NAFTA-type deals. But the fact is that the majority of the Congressional Caucus in the House and the Senate, the Democratic Caucus, was opposed to the TPP, and yet we had a U.S. president that was trying to push it through. And tell, explain to our listeners why we saw that happening. Um, it's remarkably perverse. I mean, when when I really look at the way in which Donald Trump became the president-elect, and you look at where President Obama got the highest level of white working-class votes, those are the exact mirror images. And it makes a lot of people here wonder what it did to have working-class voters who had been outraged by Bill Clinton's NAFTA devastated by it, losing whole communities just being gutted, to have thought the Democrats actually hopefully had something in mind for working people with President Obama's push on health care, etc. And then to have President Obama make as his top priority pushing, you know, basically what's NAFTA on steroids, a much worse version of corporate empowerment via trade agreement that would have meant more power for corporations and fewer jobs and lower wages for most Americans. And that really made it, I think, hard for a president, a candidate, Hillary Clinton, to say, elect me president, and you can trust me, I'm not going to do more of those agreements that, though I'm the third term of the current guy who's trying to pass one of the biggest ones of those agreements we've ever seen. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about why would President Obama have made that such a priority and such a maniacal priority when so many people were telling him what the political implications of doing that could be for whomever was running for president as a Democrat, certainly against Trump. And they just didn't stop. The day after the election, from the White House briefing room podium, Josh Ernest announced, well, the administration believes now is the time to pass the TPP. It's an important agreement. It's a good agreement. And the time's arrived to pass it. The day after that horrific election. And so you said you did a lot of thinking about this. And what conclusion did you come to? I mean, an easy one be to, an easy one would be to say, oh, President Obama is just a corporate president. He's just a middle-of-the-road guy. But tell me where you came down in thinking about this. 
I think there are different factors. I think one factor is the people who the president surrounds himself with, and he obviously can't take the time to know everything in depth that he needs to know to make all of his decisions and and formulate his positions. It so happens that the people that he brought in from day one in international economics were basically, it was like basically bringing the NAFTA band back together. It was all the Wall Street and sort of corporate trade-minded people who were Democrats, I would say, on certain social issues, but very corporate-oriented on economics. And so with that team of Larry Summers and company back together, in whom from previous, from the Clinton administration and now in this administration, a higher level, Michael Froman, a law school era friend of the president's and, and, and Wall Street guy, um, played a huge role in formulating his views on all of what his trade policy should be. So that's starting place. The place that you get stuck thinking about is what's going on at the point that while the president might have trusted his smart friends that he's known for a long time, and then he sees all kinds of other really smart people he's trusted in the past from, you know, numerous Nobel Prize winning economists like Professor Stiglitz and and Krugman and um, people like Jeff Sachs and people like Vice President Biden's own chief economist, Jared Bernstein, all very serious economists saying, wow, this TPP has no economic upside, and the downsides are horrific, and look at all this corporate power through these corporate tribunals, and it's going to raise medicine prices. And you have those people hardly accrue to think of as radical campaigners. They all supported NAFTA. And then you I have, mean, and at the same time, at that political time, you had both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders attacking NAFTA. Trump obviously was a false messenger on this, being an elitist and a billionaire who had no interest in working people. He did nothing for working people over the years and, in fact, ripped off people left and right, contractors who actually worked for them. But Bernie Sanders, as you well know, you've worked with him closely. He's been on the right side going all the way back to NAFTA, and he was making quite an issue of that. And you would think, circling back to the president, who is a one would say, a successful politician, you would think that this would occur to him, that this is not a good idea. You would, um, you would think, and that's the, part, that's the part B, which is at what point when ever, a lot of people whose judgment you trust uh, on the merits of the agreement and a lot of people who are telling you politically, even if you didn't agree with them on the merits, that politically this is a disastrous maneuver to keep pushing this, you would think they would lay off. And that's the part where I can't tell you I've ever figured out what the hell he was thinking. So this is great. Let's celebrate. Let's say woohoo, as you said in your statement, which I love that kind of enthusiasm. And let's now kind of the, the last part of this conversation, let's look forward. And, and what I loved about your uh, statement was saying, okay, now we have to come up with an alternative. We have to be proactive moving into 2017 about a trade agenda that's going to make sense for people, for consumers, for the environment. And particularly, this seems to me a place where it can be fit into the struggle over the shaping of the Democratic Party moving forward, not just the contest for who's going to chair the DNC, but what is the party going to stand for? And so I'm curious about your thoughts on that. So... You know, some some months back, Jared Bernstein, who, again, was Vice President Biden's chief economist, and a guy who, by the way, was in the White House during the whole Korea FTA fight and helped get that agreement passed. And Korea, and myself, let's, let's say Korea was the Korea Free Trade Agreement for our listeners. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, sorry. We tried to get the Korea Free Trade Agreement passed. And, and me, who was outside trying to stop it and has been a strong campaigner against these kind of agreements for decades, the two of us sat down at some point. We said, listen, TPP's going down. They're, they're not going to get a minute in the Congress. And um, under any circumstance, whoever's president next, we've got to have a new trade model. Let's, um, there's been a lot of good work on this done. Let us, let us look back on some of the best alternative stuff and let us put together a, some new rules of the road and write them down. And given we come from such different places, an economist and a lawyer, a guy who helped pass one of these agreements, someone who's fought my whole life against them, let us come together and actually also show to people 
that there are alternatives that can get the benefits of actual trade expansion without being a corporate Trojan horse of retrograde policies and expanded powers for corporations. And without... Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, without going into you know too much detail, can you give us the highlights of what that would be, so kind of our listeners get to know here's what we should be fighting for? Right. So as far as going, so if you want to read it, you can um, just just actually just Google Lori Wallach. Do, do Lori and Jared new rules of the road? It'll come right up. It's a long it's a long website address to Jared's blog where this thing is hosted. Or you can look at the American Prospect had a cover story that was the new rules of the road from us. But the bottom line of it is, every trade agreement needs to have certain things, and no trade agreement should ever again have certain things. And what we do is go through the list. So every trade agreement should have disciplines against cheating on currency value. Because it doesn't matter how, how excellent and, and competitive an American worker is, if another country's government can simply just cut the value of its currency in half, anything made here and sold in dollars just becomes too expensive to buy there. That's the end of our exports. And everything that that country sends to us becomes half again cheaper just because of a currency trick. And that's been a huge part of our trade deficits with countries like Japan, initially with Mexico under NAFTA. That's number one. Number two, there need to be enforceable labor and environmental standards that are the condition, the compliance of which, not changing a few laws, but actually the behavior in the other countries, meeting the standards, which exist already internationally, so we're not being unilateralist, we're not unilaterally imposing U.S. standards, Sovereign countries have signed up to the International Labor Organization standards, to scores of multilateral environmental agreements. They've committed to a whole kinds of kinds of conduct with respect to people on the planet, and it's not enforceable. So if you basically said, "Hey, right, you as a sovereign have signed up to do these things, now we're going to condition the access into this preferential trade regime, and you're actually doing it," you would create a floor of decency on which trade and competition would happen. That basically would fix the situation we have now, which is we have, we have global corporations and global trade and no global standards for people on the planet. So that's number two. You would insert that floor of decency using the existing standards and really conditioning trade rights on them as compared to their, their, their afterthoughts. You know, you know, their labor chapter in this agreement with Colombia, they are still assassinating their unionists. They were before, they will after, and... Nice paper we've got called the labor chapter. So that's number two. Number three, there's something called rules of origin that has to do with how much of a good content has to actually be made in the trade partner countries for it to get the goodies of the trade agreement. And the idea there is if you set the right labor and environmental and other standards, you want to reward the companies that are, that are performing in the way in the country that's meeting the standards that's trying to help workers and human rights and you basically don't want goods from another country that's not following the rules to get their goods in with special treatment. And then the final piece of it is what's often called trade facilitation. And in agreements like TPP, that means basically making it easier for really big companies to sort of take over trade. The kind of trade facilitation we're talking about is it making it possible for small businesses to actually find where there are benefits for them to export the ability to do it without having to have a whole like big multinational corporate department on exports. So that's, that's what, can, what needs to be in there. What cannot, oh, and then very important is to have readiness criteria, which is to say to, to make sure that our trade partners have democratic forms of government, so there's a way for people to hold accountable the governments to the commitments they make, that the, com the countries are of a, uh, uh, of a record of having fo followed their environmental and human rights and other commitments, and that also they're not on the government list of human rights violators, traffickers, and women and children. And then finally, that they have some buying capacity. So we spent we spent a lot of time making very detailed political agreements that um, aren't trade agreements. We could have some kind of accretion agreement, but the notion that we've spent a lot of resources on our trade negotiations with for with countries that haven't either the population size nor the GDP to buy much of anything from us is just is a waste of trade policy. What can't be in any trade agreement? The investor state tribunal system. This is this regime that would let 10,000 new corporations attack U.S. policies by suing the U.S. government 
in tribunals of three private attorneys, generally corporate attorneys. Those corporate attorneys would be empowered to award unlimited sums to be paid by us, the taxpayers, and that is at the heart of almost all of the agreements we have. That's one of the things that we have to get rid of. So when you talk about what can't be in agreements, that's in NAFTA. It would have been greatly expanded by TPP, so that's one great thing about TPP's demise. But it exists in 50 agreements the U.S. has. So we need to go back and get rid of the investor state system, and no future agreement should have it. We need to get rid of the ban on buy America and buy local procurement policies. What the heck are our trade agreements telling us how we can spend our federal tax dollars or our state and local tax dollars? Right now, we have given away the preference to reinvest our tax dollars into local goods and services. That's just a matter of something that shouldn't be in a trade agreement. That ban on Buy America, Buy Local, Buy Green has got to go. Or any limits in our trade agreements about the level of food safety protection we want. As long as we treat domestic and foreign goods equally, it's the eaters who should decide how much safety we want. And that is, by the way, true of other things, product safety standards, auto safety standards. These trade agreements all have not just treat everyone the same rules, but you can't have that much safety protection rules. Anything that is beyond just treating imports and domestic goods equally and we set the standards for the level of safety, that has got to be a standard going forward. We need to get rid of the limits on financial regulation. All of our trade agreements ban things like capital controls, which of course are used to try and avoid and then once it starts, stop a financial crisis. We need to keep the instruments of financial regulation to be able to, our current trade agreements don't let us use too big to fail rules, firewalls. All that stuff needs to come out. The rule, again, the general standard just needs to be discrimination. Treat foreign and domestic companies the same. That's it. So that gives you a sense. Key things in, key things out. That's a great summary. And, again, if people want to read the whole list and the whole logic and the whole reasoning, it's just Google Lori and Jared, trade, new trade deals, right? Rules of the road. New rules of the road. New rules of the road. Okay, well, again, Lori, congratulations. And I, on behalf of many, many people, thank you for all your hard work. And we will be with you in the struggle ahead. Thanks very much for all your amazing work. It's been a huge team of people across the TPP countries fighting together for six years. And I have to tell you, John, the only thing I'm going to miss when I think about the demise of the TPP is the weekly call I have had with my partners and counterparts from New Zealand, Australia, Chile, Peru, Malaysia, at a certain hour every Thursday for the last four and a half years. I will miss their excellent voices and all the power and hope I took from the work they were doing in their countries. And together, we did help, for now, stop the biggest and the baddest of these agreements, but you know the folks who like the TPP are going to come back in some form or another, and we're going to have to be ready to fight them again. We're, of course, thrilled to have you listening to the Working Life Podcast, and I hope you enjoy this incredible episode about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Don't forget to sign up for the podcast at workinglife.org. You can click on the podcast tab, and at that page, you can also become a sponsor of the podcast at whatever level you can afford so we can continue to bring this podcast to you. People often talk about building a big social movement as the only path to change the country. But getting from here to there ain't easy, as we saw in the recent election. Too often the pieces of the movement don't talk to each other or work together. Half the country doesn't vote. And how do you get people who are struggling to make ends meet in a country where 50 million people live in poverty to have the space and the time to be part of a big movement. Now, one person who has thought a lot about this and worked to make it all happen since the 1970s is Larry Cohen. 
Larry was a social services worker back in the 1970s. He became active in his union, the Communication Workers of America, and rose to be its president for 10 years and then retired in 2015 to get deeply involved in other political movements. Just as important, he has played a role in helping build movement coalitions like Jobs with Justice. He was Bernie Sanders' key labor advisor during the campaign, and now he's assumed the position of board chair of our revolution. And Larry does join me here on the phone. Thanks for being with us again, Larry. And uh, let's start. Pleasure. Let's start by talking about this. What I think is a victory on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and maybe look at it in an organizing and political education standpoint, which is something you've done for a long, long time. And maybe the scene I remember most was at the convention, the Democratic convention, where I was a Bernie delegate. Besides the Bernie signs, the probably the most prevalent sign were the no TPP signs. And, and that didn't just come out of nowhere. That came out of a lot of great organizing that you and lots of people did around the country. And isn't that what we learned, that organizing matters? Yeah, it is. It is what we learned that those signs were organized at every step from uh, having them printed and folded and brought and organizing uh, a TPP forum. Um, that was one of uh, three uh, issue forms that the, that we put together. Uh, I was actually responsible for organizing those. Uh, so the Bernie delegates, um, you know, frustrated as we all were in so many ways, would have something to take away. And so it was about TPP, it was about Medicare for all, it was about the links between uh, greed and racial justice, um, and those were the three. And so at the TPP forum um, is where those signs were distributed. And so it was totally an organized thing. And yes, at every step of the way, this has been about organizing, and it's been about organizing um, for a different view of the global economy, uh, and yes, we did get probably a third of, at the most, a third of the Republicans uh, in the House to join this opposition. Uh, and we should remember it's 85% of the Democrats in the House, and that's what adds up to Paul Ryan saying we don't have the votes and it's not going forward. That's our victory. Donald Trump climbed on that train, but it's no way his train and no way that we trust him going forward. Yes, and so we'll come to Trump in a moment, but Going back to the organizing and political education, I remember having been in this these trade fights going back to NAFTA, Bill Clinton's NAFTA, that initially back in 19, the 1990s, trade just wasn't something that people understood per se, and NAFTA was not in everybody's lips. And then you run forward 25 years later to this moment, and people really understood the TPP. I mean, I mean, it was a slogan that was all across the country, certainly in the political campaign, and it forced Secretary Clinton to adopt our position. So think, tell, talk a little bit about that 25 years of political organizing and how this victory relates to that. Yeah, well, I'm not sure I can do all of that justice, but I would say that it's been organizing um, by unions. I mean, my union, CWA, we put an enormous amount into this in terms of internal member education and mobilization, but obviously not just CWA. Uh, organizing by unions, uh, linking that to organizing by environmentalists who understood that as bad as it is for workers, it's at least as bad for the environment. You just export the the greenhouse gases somewhere else. In some ways, it's worse because there's no regulation where you export the manufacturing jobs. Um, and those links, and then, you know, all the other groups that together were enormously important. Uh, and in the last few years, immigration groups saying, hey, that's our story. Our families lost their farms, small farms in Mexico, and looked for the manufacturing jobs that were non-existent or poverty wages, and then came to the, this country as much out of... Uh, we had nowhere to stay in Honduras or even Mexico, as we can't wait to be in the U.S., uh, despite not having any legal status. So, you know, I think these linkages were key. I will say that within unions, um, you know, I was proud to be part of uniting every single union. In all my years, uh, you know, doing that kind of work, uh, never did I see that before. Um, so it was one time where uh, unions were together. Now, they didn't, everybody didn't work on it, 
that everybody, you know, stood together and a very broad group of unions um, fought the TPP, including, you know, the losing fight in June of 2015 when Fast Track was adopted for the TPP. But as you say, this stretches back to the narrow loss on NAFTA. It was only a few votes. Again, it was Democratic president. Part of the learning over these, and that was 1994, Bill Clinton, part of the learning over those, you know, many years, um, and, and as you said, it actually goes back before that, you know, is that um, it's the problems in both parties, uh, the problems with a, a, an ideology about the global economy that really says it'll trickle down. So all the Democrats who criticized Reaganomics about trickle down, they certainly signed on, many of them at the end, not a majority but many of them, to trickle down global economics. Uh, John Curry, as the Secretary of State, in a famous speech uh, two years ago uh, to corporate CEOs um, at the Four Seasons in Georgetown in D.C., said, uh, our top people here either come from you or they'll be embedded with you, and we build, every day we wake up knowing we work for you. And that's all through the Commerce Department. That's through every embassy. That is a core part of U.S. foreign policy. And Democratic leaders traditionally swallowed it almost as much as Republicans. That's what's at stake here, and that's why we can't rest. I think that's really well said. And one of Bernie Sanders' core messages in the campaign had to do with inequality and these bad trade agreements. And as you well know, having been Bernie's labor liaison and leader in the campaign, Bernie has opposed those trade agreements going all the way back to NAFTA. And so yep. I guess I, I guess I want to ask, do you think, since the election has just been a few days uh, prior, do you think that Bernie would have been a much better messenger to those working class voters who seem to gravitate to Trump around at least the upfront message of, oh, NAFTA's a bad thing, but Bernie would have been a stronger messenger on this issue. Yeah, and I, I think it's beyond the messenger. I think it's, uh, you know, my great-grandmother, I grew up in her house with five adults and me, said, I'll watch your feet, not your mouth. Bernie is authentic because his campaign was out in the streets on these fights, and for decades he's been out on the streets in these fights, not just talking. He, nobody doubted where he stood. And, yeah, in industrial America, you can dive into Pennsylvania. Why did... Uh, Trump win that state, uh, you go into counties like Lackawanna and Luzerne, north-central Pennsylvania, Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. Barack Obama ran far ahead of Hillary Clinton, and that's believability on core issues like who will fight for my jobs, or the article I read this morning, small town in Maine, that flipped from Obama to Trump overwhelmingly. And people were interviewed there in this article, and they said, it's about our jobs, we're fed up with the establishment, and we're, we're not going to vote for her. And so, again, we should remember she won the popular vote in any other country. She's the president-elect. So, you know, she won it by, I think, the greatest margin for anyone who ever lost the presidency, almost two million votes. But to the extent we dive into why did we lose, you know, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, clearly this is the leading issue. And it translated beyond just trade. Trade was in some way a metaphor right. to people that something was wrong, that the elites were ripping us off. And it was always astounding to me that of all people, a billionaire elitist guy who ch actually cheats people, right. thousands of people became the messenger for that, for that. Right. No, very disappointing. I will say I skipped over this, but um, the Bernie Sanders campaign was huge in terms of building more opposition um, to Trans-Pacific Partnership, demystifying it, Bernie, not just Bernie himself, and he was awesome, but the whole campaign. I mean, I was in the streets in front of the Nabisco plant, and it's not me, it's the campaign was there, the Illinois campaign uh, at Nabisco, you know, in the winter when they announced, uh, you know, that they were moving the, Nabisco, the Oreo cookie line to Mexico. And we were in the streets, literally marching in the streets of Indianapolis with the carrier workers, the whole campaign, not just Bernie, uh, to, de to demand that United Technologies with $8 billion in government contracts is not going to get away with moving the furnace plant, the carrier furnace plant, 2,000 jobs to Monterey, where the wages are about $3. And 
I, I think it's those things that a Democratic president, who we love and respect in most ways, Barack Obama, doesn't say anything to United Technologies. They're getting $8 billion in government contracts, and it's if the furnace plant doesn't count. We'll just pay out the extended unemployment and retraining benefits, millions and millions of dollars from the government treasury, while we continue to reward United Technologies with $8 billion in contracts. We don't pay attention to the one hand that's screwing people while the other hand takes our money. That's what people are fed up with. They certainly were fed up in the Steelworkers Local 1999 there. I spent a lot of time there. And I'm sure a lot of those workers didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I don't know who they voted for. But the the anger they have that a Democratic president uh, brags about this trade agreement and just stands by when that kind of gutting of their 2,000 jobs occurs. Yes, and so we need to do some serious revamping, taking over, changing the Democratic Party. And, you know, I'm happy to, I love celebrating the idea of a victory. God knows we need that. But yep, let's we talk. We need to celebrate. Let's celebrate. But to your point, as we talked before we came on the air, we need to be cautious because this ideology of so called free trade, although Trump has a particular view on that. It's against the orthodoxy of the Republican Party. So what do we look forward to going down the road a number of months, you know, next year? We still have to organize around this. Absolutely. And the organizing is global. So one of the reasons why I am celebrating for the last few days, although not totally because of the election, um, is that uh, this is a global movement against this, this kind of trade agreement. It's incredibly strong in, you know, all over the world, uh, you know, including in Asian nations, the ones that have any rights to protest. And one of the problems, obviously, with our trade agreements is we don't seem to care. That's the new low of this, that we do these kinds of agreements with Vietnam and assume it's the same as doing one with China. Uh, uh, You know, I'm sorry, not China, with Canada. And obviously, there's a gigantic difference. In Canada, people are organizing against these global trade agreements. And in Vietnam, if they do, uh, that'll be, you know, the end of their protesting. So uh, I, I, I have huge hope in uh, citizens around the world saying to their uh, governments, you know, across Europe and across Asia and across Latin America, and the opposition party, for example, in Honduras, absolutely gets what's going on here. And I, I, that's why I have faith that that kind of global organizing, we can't be against, as, as Trump sounds, we can't be against the global economy for all the reasons in the world. We have to be for a global economy that lifts people up, not one where they export jobs, as the former head of GE said, Jack Welch. I'll put my, I wish I could put my factories on a barge and move them to the lowest wage country, and then if wages go up there, I'll move them again. Yeah, I remember, That's what we're fighting against. I remember that classic quote, but it was so CEO elitist. It was, it was brilliantly said because it really exposed who they are. That's right. For us, it was brilliant that he said it, and we should continue to understand its gravity as a CEO in this country, not him. Another one uh, who I have talked to said to me, it's gravity. We're under pressure to increase our profits, to move up share prices. This is among the easiest ways to do it. You don't have to grow revenues. You just cut costs, and profits go up, and the share price goes up, and the board is happy. So let's wrap up with a brief conversation about the connection between the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which you said was a great victory, and particularly because of the organizing wall-to-wall of unions being behind the opposition to this, in, in opposition to it. But at the same time, they were not unified behind Bernie Sanders in this movement. And I just see a disconnect between that, that we had so few of the unions, at least the bigger unions, supporting Bernie, who was the best messenger about this elitism, about this attack on workers. And it's just confusing to many of my listeners. So I thought you could just speak about that briefly. Yeah, so briefly is that unions um, sort of at our core, and, you know, most of the last 40 years, um, at the core are transactional. We shouldn't be disappointed by that. We just have to understand it. So at the core, it's about the contract. It's about negotiating. And so when you bring that frame to political action, it's very hard to get past it. And so, you know, lots of unions who on some level opposed uh, this kind of 
notion of a global economy that trickles down from billionaires and finance capital um, found themselves saying, well, we believe that Hillary Clinton will win the election and she right away. On the other hand, you know, my union, the CWA, which had the members vote, was the only large one that did, um, and a bunch of other unions, I don't want to single us out, said, wait a minute, you know, if we don't stand for something here, we're asking our members that we don't believe that we can win, meaning working class people. And I think, you know, to me, and, you know, I repeat this in almost every speech with people, you know, we must believe that we can win. And we can win means we as working class people, not uh, here's the better of these two choices. And that's all we can ever do. Obviously, in a primary, it's not about the better of these two choices. It's about fighting for what we believe in. So I think the disconnect is that, that there's a huge pressure within unions to view politics as a way to get something else done. And it's particularly true in public sector unions. And I come from the New Jersey public sector in CWA, so I get this. I'm not trying to be judgmental. But, it, you know, it's a natural thing. Public sector unions view politics as an extension of bargaining, which in this country is fragmented to begin with. Half the states don't have any bargaining. And even the ones in Jersey is totally restricted, um, or New York. And um, so politics becomes a way, uh, whether it's the state level or even the federal level, to just extend the bargaining. And that leads to, you know, terrible, what I would call terrible transactional decisions, not so terrible for those unions, but not good for working class people. And we have to be able to separate the two. And so perhaps in the wake of uh, this past election, that kind of conversation can be more engaged, at least with some unions, and maybe we can shift that political view. So thanks very much for being on the show, Larry, and we'll have you back to talk more about the labor movement down the road. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. it's time for our regular robber barons segment. You know, it's easy to focus on the obvious robber barons, the bankers and the Walmarts of the world, which we've covered before, but we have to be as hard on the companies we sometimes have a more kinder feeling towards, which brings me to Apple. And up front, I'm going to say I'm not blameless here. I wrote notes for this podcast on my MacBook Air, I listen to the podcast on my iPad, and I have an iPod to listen to music. I'd probably buy the Apple Brain chip when it comes out. But here's why Apple's CEO, Tim Cook, qualifies as a robber baron. It's partly because he pulled in $10.2 million in 2015 in pay and benefits. Now, that's a lot for you and me. But that's kind of chump change when it comes to the massive paychecks that other CEOs get. But what's worse about Apple is that Apple dodges taxes to the tune of billions of dollars. And here's how this works. Big multinational companies stash billions of dollars in offshore accounts overseas to avoid taxes. And my friends at Citizens for Tax Justice, and you should check out their work and their website, they do fantastic work. They recently put out a report that found that U.S. multinational companies currently hold nearly, and you got to sit down for this one, 2.5 trillion, that's trillion with a T as in Tom, 2.5 trillion dollars offshore on which they owe up to $718 billion in taxes. Now think about that for a moment. $718 billion that could pay for schools, healthcare, roads, clean energy projects, all money that these big corporations are hiding in bank accounts overseas. Sometimes they even go to great lengths to hide this money by doing what's known as a corporate inversion, 
What that means is that a U.S. company will recreate itself as a foreign company and be, in theory, based in a foreign country, even though almost all its business is in the United States. It's totally legal, unfortunately, but what it allows it to do is keep even more money stashed overseas, saying that, well, it's a foreign company. It doesn't have to bring that money back to the U.S. Treasury. Now, how do you think this corruption works? Well, just 10 of those companies with $338 billion in offshore earnings also spent almost $60 million lobbying Congress in just six months. Think about that. Apple and Pfizer are two companies that have a ton of money stashed overseas, and each one spent millions of dollars in lobbying. Apple spent $2.25 million, and Pfizer, a drug company, spent $6.17 million. That's all to buy votes in Congress and to manipulate the tax laws that allows them to hide their money. So how much has Apple stashed overseas? Pick a number. How much do you think they have? 10 million, 100 million, 5 billion, 25 billion, nope, 216 billion dollars. They're number one in hiding money overseas. That means that their unpaid tax bill is about 67 billion dollars at the current corporate tax rate, which is too low as it is. 67 billion dollars that Apple is hiding overseas out of the hands of the U.S. Treasury so that you and I, our neighbors, can't get decent services like schools, health care, roads, and clean energy projects. And that's why Tim Cook is a robber baron. He's pocketing millions of dollars for himself while denying the rest of us the benefit of a government that has the funds to build a decent country. And that's all for this week's episode. I want to thank my guests, Lori Wallach and Larry Cohen. Thanks also to Jesse Kane Hartnett, who is the audio editor for the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do become a subscriber and, if you can, a financial supporter. And we look forward to having you back next week.